Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Emily. Hi, how was your week? Uh, Not too bad, actually. I'm feeling quite fit and well. Great. (laughs) My only kind of symptom at the moment, or it's a new symptom, or it could be completely unrelated, it could just be dehydration, is that my legs at night, I get cramps in my feet and my calves, in my shins, in my toes, and I can't sleep. Maybe it's dehydration or the heat, but I've heard it one or two times in the long COVID community, so it might be long COVID. I don't want to put labels on things. I know. I uh, I had it only this week, so not in the past two plus years. So okay, who knows? Who knows? And tell me, this I have to say to all our listeners is not the first time we've spoken, but I will ask you as if I don't know. How was your week? I have COVID, so it's not been the best week to be honest with you. And this is number. This is number three, and. I feel like it's a little bit unfair because I think compared to the majority of the world, I have been really careful. I don't go into an office regularly. I don't travel on public transport regularly. I wear a mask when I go into places. But anyway, I got COVID. I don't know if we are more susceptible to getting it than other people. Well, I think we are. My husband swans around the world completely fine, in and out of his office, he he doesn't bring it home. So. Mine too, actually. Yeah. Both times we've had COVID in the house, he hasn't brought it and he travels and is out talking to people yeah. all day. So, yes, it is very unfair. And I do think we are more susceptible, more susceptible to it. Yeah. So talking about susceptibility, I managed to get my GP here to give me one of those uh, T-cell subset tests, blood tests. My CD8 cells are 529, and I think it's 500 and below for HIV status, so pretty low. And my uh, natural killer cells are sitting at 80, which is extremely low, and which is something that's only just being looked at, according to some immunologists who I called right away. (laughs) Oh, my God, look at my results. And And they're like, we're looking at NK cells at the moment. And long COVID. So do you think that it is our depletion, potentially CD4, CD8, the NK cells, that means that we can get more easily infected? Or is it just our ability to fight it once we're infected that that is compromised? That's a hard question. Maybe I'd say both. I think we're more likely to get it if your immune system is, is struggling. Yeah. It puts a real nonsense spin on like all the government saying that we can live with covid yeah and the evidence of the worst outcomes every time you get it regardless of whether or not you have the ability to look at those t-cells and things the instances of related issues and illness increase so what do you think you have what were your symptoms this time around so do you think it might be BA5? I suspect it's BA5. It started with a sore throat, but not just the kind of sore throat that you get like a little spike in your throat. This was like a really 
round all around your throat sore throat was it like a, a crown of barbed wire yeah exactly is that is that how it's described no it's me <laughs> it's beautiful it's poetic yeah and then I got a 40 degree fever fluctuating but the fever stayed for about three days and now I am just so tired my limbs feel like I have like they're just tingling like I have pins and needles in them all the time I, I think the the hardest thing is I was doing really well. I had felt like it was the best I'd been in two and a half years. And so mentally it's quite, uh, it's been quite a big thing to deal with. That idea that as soon as I was just getting on the right foot, I am likely to be set back quite a quite a way. Unless, and I'm going to be positive this week and not you, that that 40 degree fever got rid of all your you know latent disease or virus that they say are in pockets of little reservoirs in your body yeah and i'm hopeful that it's cleared it or is clearing it that viral persistence the the two vaccines and the last bout of covid didn't the the fevers from those didn't but let's think positively (laughs) and also i do feel like we know that much more now about how to behave what to do like I'm really really trying to not exert myself yes but it's physical and and mental don't forget yeah so what did you do have you been taking any of the stuff that we know helps what's your what's your regimen been well I mean you called me immediately and told me to take my vitamins so I took them yes I did (laughs) once (laughs) all right Um, well done however I have also been taking for the past five weeks now, I've been taking Fidicinons 9 and that is the subject of our interview this week. We did the interview a few weeks ago and then wanted one of us to have tried it before we spoke about it and so it seems appropriate to put it out this week. I did check in with Fidicinons 9 when I got acute COVID and just checked the recommendations for how what to do with dosage and, and things. I can't say whether the Dysnals 9 has been a major player in me feeling okay up until the point that I didn't have COVID because, I, you know, as we always say, you can't take anything in isolation. There are so many factors that, that go into it. But in terms of positivity, I'm hoping that taking the Dysnals 9, which is a 3CL protease inhibitor, will reduce the length of this active COVID and hopefully that will have some positive benefit. We spoke to Joachim Gerlach of Vedicinals 9. He is an entrepreneur who spent a lot of years researching and I think investing quite a lot of his own money in trying to establish some of the causes of modern day chronic illnesses and trying to develop lifestyle things that could help with, with chronic illness. He believes that we get ill from our environment. So he spent a long time trying to help his family. I think it's his wife who's not very well. Yeah. Trying to develop medication that might help her. And so it's a really interesting interview with someone who's been invested in this area of medicine or health. He's invested a lot of his time and money into trying to help people with chronic illness. And he's quite an inspiration, I think. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your story, how you got into this? So I was looking at the environmental 
influence of um, toxins, lack of micronutrition, air pollution, and other causes that are fueling chronic illnesses all around the world in on our already now younger populations. And by doing that, I invested a lot of money. I had a contact with biologists. I had them fly to our island. And we started first, I thought, okay, let's, let's do some organic farming. We built greenhouses in the desert in Fortunatura. Uh, went into the soil science, the biome of the soil and different humic acids. And even like taking trace minerals out of seawater and taking care of plants and seeing that people get better food. At the same time, I was working with several scientists that we're liking my projects and we, we went deeper into seeing what can be done about people that are not able to eat organic because not everybody has the money to do so. And, and so we thought, okay, let, let's find a way of with, with the dietary supplements and some agents that can chelate these toxins, in the, especially in the guts, what is possible. So I joined up with Dr. Senef from MIT. She's one of the leading scientists in the glyphosate and herbicide sector and uh, went with her through all her studies. And I said, look, you describe very well why people get sick. Why don't you help me now to work with our people on remedies that can help to <laughs> keep people healthy? What can we do there? And so that, that was taking the better part of like six, seven years full time. And that was before COVID hit. And when COVID hit and I saw the pictures from, from China, I thought like, well, this is not a joke. And I told everybody, whatever we're working on, just drop it. Let's just focus on that thing because that's going to be major, especially in the, in the populations in the developed countries with the bad food habits and the bad lifestyle and the already chronically ill percentage of the population, they will suffer severely, especially the gut dysbiosis and intestinal inflammation. What we see now in the long haulers, that will be the main reason why these people get severely sick and if they survive it, they will be chronically ill. And so we went directly into the research and I got again a large group of scientists. And the route was, of course, nutraceutical or dietary supplements. Nobody can develop a chemical drug if it's not a repurposing in that short time frame, because you have to go through so much some compliance. I understood that very early. So what we did was on January 25th, 2020, I contacted somebody from Harvard Paul Cottrell, and I asked him, can you get the sequencing of that new coronavirus? He said, yes, sure, I can get that. And then by end of January, we had already figured out what has remained the same, like in SARS-1 and MERS, you know, what, what hasn't changed. Everything else was mutating, that was obvious, but what has not mutated in that coronavirus, and that was the main protease. And so, fortunately, that was also the target for many Chinese and Southeast Asian or in the whole East, even Asian Pacific region, all these scientists had been working on SARS-1 for more than one decade here. Yeah? And they had tried a lot of molecules on the three CL protease, the main protease, which is the backbone of any coronavirus. And that has remained preserved. It hasn't changed much. And so we went directly to work at that and looked at which kind of potent inhibitors of that protease were in the literature and in laboratory testings, animal testings, and even somewhere coming from human clinical trials. And so that was the start of the making of the, of the assembly of that formulation. And so then in the meantime, we get all these different reports, what else this coronavirus is causing and which mechanisms are affected. The, the list of drug target pathways, as you call it in development, was growing by the day. 
And we were like exceeding 50, 60 drug target pathways already by end of March 2020 that needed to be covered. So you, you had to go now into the rest of the molecules from around 8,000 known natural molecules. You had to filter out the molecules that would be best at addressing effectively these different drug target pathways, either alone or in combination. Um, and at that stage, was that those pathways looking at, at purely at the acute phase, or were you already aware at that point of the longer effects of the virus? If you look at the long-term effects, which we are now very intensively researching since a year and a half, and you compare them to the acute uh, effects, you cannot really separate those. They're pretty much a prolongation of many of these pathways. Plus, you have dysregulations that happen and then turn permanent. Apart from the antiviral part that is maybe not that needed in long COVID, all the other pathways are practically still playing out in, let's say, in severe acute COVID illness and prolonged uh, long COVID. Plus, you have some more that are only to be reported in long COVID. There are some that you don't find in acute COVID. Yes, some of the pathways we didn't know in the initial phase of formulation development. We found out later because these molecules work on some settings that are quite upstream. So if you have a cascade of cytokines or a cascade of inflammation and you have a molecule that goes right on target to reduce interleukin-6, for example, or some of these markers, um, then you have, we have nine molecules. So each of these molecules will maybe do that by a different pathway, even upstream from that. And so we were very fortunate to have these nine interesting molecules working in concert there. And some of the pathways we cover is actually coincidence. It was a, let's say, a collateral benefit. We found out later in trials and in uh, preclinical trials and in, in, in literature, other scientists found that these molecules do that as well. What are the nine molecules? In the beginning of the selection process, we had several hundred molecules that would have the possibility to address these pathways. Selection criteria was not only to cover the pathways. Another selection criteria was also to have a high safety profile. Mm -hmm. Another selection criteria would be synergistic effects between these molecules, which were some in the literature, and some of them we uh, then had to verify by doing animal trials, which we also did then extensively. You, you have a large group of molecules, you have a large group of pathways, and then the rest is more like a machine learning, AI system using process of running the data pathways against molecules. At the same time, we had a, a large group of Indian scientists that are doing so-called in silico molecular docking. That means they would simulate the molecules, the proteins and our molecules in a specific computer system. You call that an in silico study. So they could see the binding affinity of our molecules against certain proteins, certain enzymes or host receptor cells or parts of the virus. So there was ongoing parallel and there was a feedback loop from there into the selection of the molecules. Then we were dropping more and more molecules and in the end we ended up with these nine molecules. And so in the last two years and some months, we get a very large amount of third-party confirmations that each of these molecules just by itself is already pretty good in tackling COVID conditions, inflammation, organ damage, and many of these pathways. So for us then, the next question was, is this mix of nine molecules from the pharmacodynamics and from the safety profile, is that viable to use that as a formulation? And that's what we did then. So we went 
after having the single molecules and some combinations in animal trials, then we went into the whole formulation and tried that in animal settings. So we did uh, acute toxicity trials and long-term toxicity trials on the animals first to see that this is safe, as safe as possible. When you say long-term, how long-term is that? Yeah, long-term is where if you go at a full dosage, which is a much, much higher as the dosage as we do. So let's say that the standard that the industry is normally accepting and what is accepted amongst these pharmacologists is you do a 28-day toxicity trial, but we went at 1,000 milligram per kilo of body weight, which is a multiple times what we have now in the current formulation. What's the approximate that we have for for humans in the formulation? In the formulation, we are at the moment at close to 5,000 milligram per daily dosage of active ingredients. And this is calculated for around 60 kg. If you would go at 1,000 milligram per kilogram, then that would mean 60,000 equivalent. Now, so I think we are pretty pretty okay on that one and you've tested it 12 times the level so what are these molecules then so that what molecules did you choose and if you can also detail what pathway or what symptoms each one works on that would be fantastic uh, okay bacalin is from a, from a plant it's actually chinese plant scutera bicalensis and uh, so we have a pretty high extract the main choice for that was its its ability to downregulate furine which most people don't understand. If you look at the bakelin molecule, it wouldn't say it does it downregulate furin, but it, it gets metabolized. So if you eat bakelin, then in your guts, it will be metabolized into a substance called oroxylin A. And oroxylin A is one of the most potent furin inhibitors known. And you want to have a furin inhibitor in any case, because the gain of function of SARS-CoV-2, the main gain of function is the furin cleavage site between the S1 and S2 subunit. So if you display furin on your cell, and if that is elevated, like in diabetes 1 or chronic inflammation and other diseases, then this coronavirus will have a very easy time to get into your cells. So it is a very well-recognized drug target pathway against SARS-CoV-2 or spike protein fusion on your cells. As a preventative, or if you take it subsequently, is this something you need to have been taking before you catch COVID? When you, when you catch COVID and you have a viral load in your mouth and in your throat and in your nasal cavities to start with, and then go slowly down your respiratory tract, it is not a sudden process. It is a process that will build up over several days. So I don't think that it's possible to, to prevent an infection by downregulating furin. But furin is one of the main factors that will then enable the virus to spread in your tissue once you have it. So you want to downregulate that. And especially if you have a suspension, as we have an oral suspension, you might want to keep that even in your mouth for a moment and make sure that it gets absorbed in your mucus and your mouth mucus and epithelium. But bakelin is, then, of course, helping. On top of that, it's also a very potent 3CL inhibitor the main protease inhibitor, plus I would say around 40 to 50 different other pathways that are coming in with the inflammation, with the immune dysregulation, neuroprotection, you just name it. So then you have another molecule, another really important one is quercetin. Mm. 
that is now uh, no secret anymore. I mean, quercetin is now being completely established as a treatment in long COVID, isn't it? Or in COVID as well. Well, I've taken quercetin though for a long time and I'm not seeing any benefits of it. I stopped it for a while. I've started taking it. I don't feel, uh, in fact, the two weeks since I've been taking it, I've been feeling really not great. So I've not felt the anti-inflammatory properties of the quercetin that I'm taking. But I wonder if what you have used is different to what's commercially available. Yeah, okay. There's, uh, let's say there's two things. One thing is, of course, the poor bioavailability of these unwater-soluble phenolic compounds like quercetin. So it's very well known that they should work well because in some in vitro tests and in animal tests, they are doing really a good job in counteracting some of these disbalanced pathways. The problem is the bioavailability. And that is something that we have obviously solved very well. I mean, I get calls from scientists and doctors from the US and elsewhere, they say, and they want to use medicines for some purposes. And I try to explain them the molecules and they laugh. They say, we know these molecules for 30 years, but how the hell did you get this bioavailability? Uh, so they're really surprised how strong uh, this really goes into effect, this combination, in this form of that suspension. And uh, you can also look in our literature. We have it all documented pretty well in the animal trials because the last version then, before we went into formulation development and production, we had one version that we tested on the animals with some biomarkers being 22 times better addressed than with a normal quercetin, bacalin, curcumin mixed powder in, in water. So we obviously have done something right there. And it has to do with the molecular size, the way the water is treated and the way it's mixed and the way it's being stabilized. So you cannot compare a normal powder supplement with what we have here. Absolutely not. After quercetin is luteolin, is also a, a flavonoid. So luteolin is uh, very similar to quercetin, does a lot of the same things but does have also some specific region in COVID where it is more potent or is covering things that the other molecules don't the, so the next one after that is a routine I would say routine is our quercetin so what happened when you take routine and it's being metabolized in your guts then you end up with a very high percentage of pure quercetin huh. whereas if you eat quercetin you will end up with many 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 smaller amounts of many metabolites. So the rutin is actually the quercetin bomb. Ah. And then comes the hesperidin, that is an orange flavonoid, it's made from orange peels, and that has other really interesting uh, properties. Um, one of them is, for example, is known to be pre pretty much the only inhibitor between receptor binding domains by protein and ACE2. Yeah, then we had curcumin, the broadband, not only anti-inflammatory, you have a whole cascade of hypersensitivity, hyperinflammation, hypercoagulation, uh, ongoing organ damage, uh, going into uh, metabolic disorders, the, the diabetes 2, etc. So the, then you have um, also epigallocatechin gallate, which is a green tea extract, has again other properties and highly synergistic, for example, with quercetin, and neuroprotective, very strong antiviral. And this is one of the more water-soluble uh, molecules. Plus it is a it's actually a, could be seen as a replacement together with quercetin for as a zinc ionophore. That is like uh, what hydroxychloroquine is used for. So you, you transport zinc ions into the cell 
to stop viral replication. And it, at least in laboratory testing, did that as good as hydroxychloroquine. And uh, then you have piperine, which is the black pepper extract. Which is what is normally used in combination with turmeric, is it? Exactly. It enhances uh, very strongly the bioavailability and the potency of uh, not only that, it does that even with pharmaceuticals, and it does that with pretty much all of the nine compounds involved. Wow. Okay. So it's really uh, an interesting uh, addition. We only have 50 milligram in there. That is very is a very small amount, but it's enough to increase the efficacy on many of these parameters that we're aiming at. And then you have glycocerine, which is a, the extract of licorice root. And that, again, is an interesting substance, especially in the synergistic combinations with all the other molecules we found. And uh, that is a very, very strong antiviral. It's actually, if you ask me which one is the strongest antiviral from all, I would say licorice or glycocerine. Yes, absolutely. The good thing is that both uh, epigallocatechin gallate, the green tea extract, as well as licorice, are very strong, excellent mucus penetration or adhesion molecules. They even use these molecules to transport other substances through our mucus layer in the mouth. In the beginning and the onset of the disease, it's interesting to cover the oral cavity because that's where the main battleground is for that virus to start. We thought that would be a good, a good property to have. One more thing, maybe that's really important. It is now proven beyond any doubt that SARS-CoV-2 is infecting our bacteria. Bacteria in our mouth, bacteria in our gut, and so on. So you want to have something that is not only antiviral, you want something also that is pretty good at stopping bacterial overgrowth and bacterial replication. Uh, so these are pathways that we took into consideration, not because we knew that SARS-CoV-2 would infect the bacteria, but we knew that it would cause some sort of immunodeficiency and people would have strong co-infections with bacteria, bacterial pneumonia and other bacterial problems that would go in, in lockstep with a, with a COVID infection or even after, like in India, they call that post-COVID. So if I might just ask at this point, to develop these molecules, what is your theory as to what is driving the long COVID, the longevity of it? Is it a persistence of the virus? Or what is it that is causing it to go on for so long? Yeah, that is a really nice, uh, interesting and uh, very hot discussed topic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, according to Patterson and all the other um, experts in long COVID, they told me some months ago, there is no proof for any viral, active viral, replicable viral persistence in long COVID. I think that now it has been counter, has been proven otherwise, but still, I also don't believe that it is a big problem. I don't see that the, the viral load and the, vi the viral persistence will be enough to cause really severe ongoing problems. Once this cascade has been put into motion, as we see in many COVID uh, and long COVID sufferers, you don't need an active virus anymore to keep fueling it. I think that there might be some pockets. And in our last conference, there was a Dr. Michael von Elsecker, who is an expert in MECFS and neurotropic pathogens that can trigger through the nerve endings, ongoing MECFS and 
central nervous disturbances, especially between the gut and the gut brain axis. So if you ask my opinion, I would say that one of the main factors can, can be things that are not really directly related to long COVID, but that are EBV activation, Borrelia, other herpes viruses, maybe even some bacterial infection that, that are triggering the nerve endings of your central nervous system through the vagus nerve and can cause a lot of irritation and fatigue and other uh, symptoms. That would be one factor. I, I would say that has really weight more than active SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's useful to take care of them as well. There, there are pockets uh, in the guts, for example, there is now reported that there are pockets of live virus still there between the epithelial cells. You know, our gut is not like a smooth highway of cells. It is a very caved structure. So there is a possibility of virus to, to persist. It has been reported. And also in the fecal bacteria, it is possible, yes. I don't think it's the main factor, if you ask me. I don't even think that there's any main factor. It's multiple factors. Can I ask why you chose to work with India? Was that someone that you had a historical relationship with? Or was it specifically to do with the fact that you felt that you could find the molecules and the right elements in India? Yes, uh, several uh, some things you mentioned exactly like that. So we, I had very good connections already to India to start with. Yeah. The second point was that in India, the political atmosphere to work with plant-based remedies and natural plants is, of course, way more established than it is in our countries. In India, you even have a ministry for Ayush, but it means a ministry for Ayurvedic systems or remedies, and you just name it. So India is very strong on on. Uh, on on uh, medicinal plants and uh, has a long tradition in this. Uh, second, it is um, a country where they would support us in doing that and not, we wouldn't have any headwinds like we have here. A third of all is um, that compared to other countries in India, you do have an outpatient treatment regime from the beginning on. That means if you get COVID and you live in India, your doctor will give you whatever they deem right to treat COVID from the first moment on. Because they say it's a dangerous virus and we cannot leave that untreated. I mean, if you have a bladder infection uh, and you come to a doctor and, and, uh, and the doctor would say, no, you go home now and you come back when your kidneys are inflamed. <laughs> well, you mean like, like the NHS does here? Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we talk a lot, lot on um, this podcast about how we are very bad, and it's not just here, we're very bad as Western nations at uh, treating people when they're so far along in their illness, they'll basically prevent you from dying. But uh, if you have these chronic things, perhaps Germany is better, but the UK and the US, our healthcare systems are not geared up to dealing with that illness that becomes chronic that could probably not have become chronic had it been dealt with. Do you think that India is better geared up for, for that kind of, well, they approach everything more holistically, don't they? So The numbers speak for itself. Yeah, I mean, India did have one bad um, wave last year, the Delta wave. That was bad. But if you compare it to the amount of people, 1.35 billion people living in India, 
then even those numbers compared to our numbers in relation are very small. Really? Yes. And so if you have a diet that is uh, very rich in phenolic compounds and flavonoids and these kinds of things to start with, and you still have a large part of the population living in, in rural settings and eating traditional food that they cook at home, then the overall outcome of this pandemic will be much better. I think that's really interesting. We have interviewed a couple of people talking about diet and the replenishment of the gut bacteria is something that quite a, a few people are looking at. And there's definitely a lot of overlap with the various things that we're using. I am really interested. We're all developing these chronic illnesses and that's probably a conversation for, for another time. But I think there is some underlying problem with our immunities in the West from the overly processed foods. So I know you also worked at looking at pollutants, didn't you? Yeah. So basically we put, put too much crap into our bodies to be able to process. Yes, and, uh, of course. And, the, and let's say the, apart from the heavy metals and toxins and so on and so on, the biggest problem is, of course, if you are actually damaging your gut biome mm. by various mechanisms. And so it is now pretty clear that most of the long haulers that became long haulers, mostly women and in the middle-aged women, we are, we are suspecting and other experts like Philip and so on, they all say like they, they all had some sort of intestinal inflammation kind of conditions underlying to start with. And yeah. out of that, the long COVID grew much better. It was fertile ground for long COVID. Yeah, we read a report that is basically saying that there's possibly an underlying irritable bowel syndrome or that kind of autoimmune condition that people were not aware of before they contracted yeah. COVID that has then triggered the long COVID. But I think that's really interesting that then eating a um, diet of a lot of pulses, all of the spices um, and various things that are so well known to have anti-inflammatory pro properties, historically, as well as once you've got COVID, that uh, as you're saying in India, the outcome is better. Yes, I mean, you have to look at also um, the, the recommendations now from several of the integrative doctors, which are combining allopathic pharmaceuticals uh, with uh, nutraceuticals and dietary recommendations. I think mm. that this is a very good way to go. I, even in India, we have seen lately then a, a fight between the ICMR and, and the institutions that are on using pharmaceuticals, normal clinical settings, and in the Ayurveda fraction, which are using medicinal plants, and they were fighting each other. And I said, well, guys, what are you doing? We have to collaborate. We have to work together. And there is no either this or that. It, it, it should be used. In, in I think that there are many cases where you need a pharmaceutical without any doubt. It's much more targeted. It's much stronger. It is designed to do a certain, maybe narrow mechanism spectrum, but they, they're doing it very well. Yeah, so I think there's room for both of that. And mm -hmm. if yeah, if I look at now the reports we get from other doctors, they're using CCR5 inhibitors like Miraviroc with statins and they do some other treatments and then they go use medicinals in alternating fashion. And the results out of that are much better than each thing alone. Okay. Can we just talk your study, sorry, your clinical control trial was done in the acute setting, I believe. 
Yes. And I know you've got studies in, in other countries now, but have you started studies specifically in, the, in long COVID? Not yet. What we did in the clinical trial study, we were the first ones to do a 45-day complete survey of all patients. So that means 45 days longer than acute. And we took, I don't know, more than 50,000 data points in that study alone. Yeah. We could observe then um, at least how far could we then prevent these, these mechanisms from being prevailing. And so the, the clinical trial, look, we are a nutraceutical. So there are not many companies that have nutraceuticals and go into same kind of uh, phase one clinical trial settings as the pharmaceuticals. As they go in with the pharmaceuticals, yeah. We are going to get now into clinical trials, but it takes a moment. You have to have an ethics commission, you have to fund yeah. it, and so on. And there is not really a big enthusiasm on financing uh, clinical trials with nutraceuticals. Yeah, that comes on top. And maybe I can remind everybody that this is a private initiative and that I finance it out of my savings. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, we still have to go against the wind, so to speak, yeah. uh, with these kind of interventions. Although they show, if you see what kind of feedback we get from doctors and patients on our product, I mean, I cannot claim that we get everybody better. That doesn't exist. No, but t- please tell me about that. What are the results that you've seen? What have the responses been? So the, the responses are as with anything in, in, this, in this field, especially in long COVID, are individually a little bit different. Now, because we are looking at uh, so many different pathologies, so many different conditions and symptoms, even within the long haulers, they're not all the same at all. So the best reports we actually get on breathlessness, which is also exactly correlating with our clinical trial results. Right. So that means gas exchange in the lung, and restoration of lung function. So during our clinical trial, we had a 75% improvement on lung X-ray findings after 12 days. Wow. Yeah. And that kept going the whole time in India during acute COVID and what they call post-COVID. We had the same thing. Ground glass opacity and the X-ray findings that were horrific within less than two weeks. Really bring that back. And so that is where we are, the strongest side of the distance is breathlessness. But also the overall fatigue and the, the feeling of feeling sick and having inflammation, that is what gets reported most and very quickly in some patients. How, how fast are we talking? Because this is one of the things that Noreen and I are always talking about. Both of us have very different symptom sets, but it just feels like an inflammation. Everything is driven by some kind of inflammation. How quickly could I alleviate that? With the decimals I don't know. nine. We have reports from a few days, 10 days, two weeks. And if after maybe after 28 days or let's say even then take a break and another 14 days, we don't see an improvement, then we say, look, there, you, you must have some other cause that is outside the range of the decimals. We have to see what that might be. You, have to, you go to your doctor again, do another panel, look deeper. And we might, in the coalition with all the other scientists and people from the industry now, define where do we start to work, where do we stop to work, what needs to be done. Uh, so there are some pathways that, for example, CCR5 inhibition or what effractokine, the statin, and the adhesion of monocytes, we are, we are working on that. But maybe less strong 
than a pharmaceutical product. So sometimes it makes sense to use the pharmaceutical drug for a while and correct it as good as you can, and then you use the distance to hold it. That might be a good strategy. For example, most people, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say around 80% of long haulers do report improvements with medicinals. And then not maybe half of them uh, report incredible improvements. Uh, so really? We get, yes, we get feedback. I can send you some of the feedback. I don't know of anything that's getting 50% of, of people saying that there are big improvements. And we have spoken to quite a lot of different therapeutics. If I say improvements, I don't mean that everybody that is now talking about improvement reports now complete recovery. That will not be possible. You know? No. I get reports also from, let's say, from a rubber rock, uh, from like uh, also other nutraceuticals, uh, low-dose matrix, uh, LDN, you know, for yeah. example, that uh, seems to have a lot of long haulers. Well, we're, we're struggling to get Maraviroc. LDN, we have not tried. Everyone right now is jumping on the Paxlovid bandwagon. And from an interview we did and from anecdotal evidence we're seeing, seems to suppress the virus a little bit and then you rebound. We have a very strong proven SARS-CoV-2 antiviral. But I think to address the cofactors like EBV activation, some bacterial overgrowth, and other herpes viruses, and there's a whole load of other viruses that are reported in long COVID to be upregulated. I think that is much more important. And so we are now looking to find some of the best medical doctors that are very experienced in EBV treatment. It's kind of difficult also to diagnose if you have EBV activation. There's like three different markers. You have to know your way around that very well. Yeah, And so we are already recommending, I mean, apart from our own nutraceutical, we are actively recommending other products on our website, which we know that are reported to be okay with medicinals to be taken together. Because we have a big problem. We get lists every day of... Um, Interactions. Other, yeah, of, uh, of uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, also other, other dietary supplements that people are taking. Right. Sometimes I, I look at these lists and I tell them, I said, if you want to take the distance on, uh, on top of that, you better drop that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. And I, I asked our scientists, and they looked at it, the pharma, pharmacologists, and they all went like, no. And if you, if you combine any nutraceutical or dietary supplement, depends what you take, and you take that together with pharmaceutical drugs, there are certain enzymes, CYP450, 350, that are up or down regulated. And you will now play around with the remaining dosage of that drug in the blood. If you do that, you're running the risk of overdosing or not at all dosing anymore, critical drugs. Uh, Vedicinals 9 is perhaps then different to a lot of the other nutraceuticals that people are taking because we don't have any information of what's interacting with the pharmaceuticals that we're taking, really, do we? We don't necessarily have any information on the interactions between the pharmaceuticals that we're taking, but the pharmaceuticals plus the nutraceuticals or any other supplements, we might just be cancelling out all of the pharmaceuticals that we're taking. Yes, or, or even overdosing, uh, creating an overdose in certain pharmaceuticals. Uh, so if you take resveratrol or alpha-lipoic acid, or just you look at these long lists that long orders are taking, and then they take a critical drug like a beta blocker or an anticoagulant or something, you are changing the enzymes in, in your blood that degrade this drug, for example, and you keep dosing them according to your doctor's uh, recommendations. 
So it will take a couple of days and you're starting to severely overdose these kind of drugs because they are not being degraded as they should be. And so it I would be very careful uh, with combining nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals. Better is to use them maybe in an alternating fashion or go first in pharmaceuticals, correct the stuff that you want to correct, and then continue with nutraceuticals to hold the ground and clear up the other corners where the pharmaceuticals doesn't get to. See, that's never told to us. That's the first time anyone said that. If you look on the cohorts about people taking this pharmaceutical, this pharmaceutical, and then a full list of supplements that everyone's taking. Yes, it's interesting that it could potentially be dangerous. It is like a dancing on a minefield. I mean, it can go fine, but <laughs> you don't want to do that all the time. Do you think it's best to take a nutraceutical when you're when you're on a good patch? Because you know that long COVID relapses and remits. I'm, I'm still not sure. Because sometimes it, it, we have seen also other doctors and holistic and um, integrative medics doing very strong keto diet and fasting. Then they give medicinals for two weeks and then they look at the panels, the internal, the externals and other blood panels. And then they decide what hasn't been taken care of now that they target that specifically with pharmaceuticals. So it, it can be done both way around. It is not, there is no, no standard uh, idea on how to do that. That takes communication, right? Between the two sets of doctors. That is actually the biggest problem. Yeah? You need doctors that are yeah. familiar with both and they are very few. The so-called integrative medics, like you have some in New York now, you have some in America, and you do have in Britain some doctors that are also looking at that and that are open for that. Like I don't know if you know Dr. Tina Pierce, for example. She's more on the in the MCAS direction. So, uh, in, especially in the first few months of long COVID observation, the mast cell activation and histamine allergies were very much in focus. So she, and she comes from that originally. She's an AMCAS expert. So she knows about quercetin and, and uh, luteolin as very strong mast cell activation inhibitors. And so she looked at the distance from the beginning very favorable because she saw exactly what this can do and what can be done with altering treatments protocols. Yeah, both Emily and I were given antihistamine therapy. So two different types of histamine inhibitors. It's again like what you do, what you want to do pharmacologically speaking. If you have an H1, H2 blocker, then you just block the receptor. So that is symptom management. That means you don't feel so bad anymore. Yeah. yeah. So then you want to maybe take some steps further backwards, you know, in the, in the process. And then you look, where does the histamine come from? Uh, is the histamine coming from mast cells that are activated, which often is the case. So you want to calm down the mast cells, keep them from popping, from degranulating. But there's always a trigger also before that. What is triggering the mast cells is IgE from the B cells. So there you want to go back again and look what can help in B cell differentiation. And then you look at the rest of the problem. For example, if you have a leaky gut and you have a dysbiosis at the same time, that can trigger a histamine problem as a root cause. So you want to look more at probiotics. You want to look to avoid histamines and you want to look at probiotics that degrade histamine and not fuel histamine production so that if you see that on our website we have a, a special list of uh, dietary recommendations for your food with a long list uh, several hundred food classes classified for the histamine content or histamine release potential 
And then you see special probiotics on our website that are helping, especially if you have a histamine problem, to rebalance your biome a bit. And the rest with medicinals, you, you are helping the tight junctions to close again, and you have to um, protect the biome in general, plus the mucus layer and the epithelium in your intestines will, will be feeling much better. This is pretty sure. People are able to buy your product freely. Is it available? We still have a lot of on stock we, because we are a small company. We are not known. A lot of people think that it cannot work. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, and we don't have big budgets now to do television commercials, although we do now one in the US. And so um, it is available online and it goes very fast. I mean, uh, my, my partner in India, he did a good job at uh, even getting that as a liquid uh, to DHL Express. So to the US, it's usually four working days max to arrive. Yeah, my one concern is we've talked about this one nutraceutical, but you know, people do need to be careful about drug interactions, like you said. Yes. They have to make informed choices and do as much research as possible. Oh. Absolutely. Are there, on your website, are people able to get in touch and ask Yes, yes. Best is WhatsApp. There's a button when you are on the website. You can just click there and you're directly in contact with Prakash, my, my partner in India, and the colleagues there. We know that many, a minimum a third or more of the non-haulers are having a hard time uh, losing their jobs, not being able to work, spending a lot of money on medical bills, etc., etc. So we did the best possible to make it as affordable as possible. So it's a 14-day course, will be around $100 plus the PayPal fee. And then we have some countries like Britain, Germany, Italy, and some of the EU countries where they charge import tax also in, uh, in Ireland. And this we cannot change. I mean, the people ask me, can you change it? I said, no, it's Her Majesty's Customs. And I don't have such a good relationship with her. <laughs> when you start taking it it's very good to first start with a teaspoonful and just to see if you have any allergic reaction it almost never we get that reported but you never know now before yeah. you uh, take a larger amount of it uh, you take the bottle and you have to uh, shake it well and i i would say um, treat it like a tequila slammer knock it strongly <laughs> i wouldn't recommend that if there is not a reason for that so we could measure that uh, in the animal trials there is something going there so just do that. It doesn't cost anything. The bottle is strong enough. It won't break. <laughs> and, and I take it in the morning with food, yeah, uh, after breakfast or with or during breakfast and with an early dinner. Twice, twice a day. Twice a day, half a bottle. Okay. I just wanted to ask you one question about one of the articles that I read from you and Prakash listed your long COVID biomarkers as IL-6, CRP, D-dimer and lung x-rays. I think Noreen and I, we're completely normal, completely clear on all four of those biomarkers. So for people like us, on what do you base our improvement or is it just down to symptom reporting? The reason why, why we think that this could happen, for example, if you have problems with your vagus nerve, central nervous system, for example, glial cells, microglia, which are like mast cells, on the other side of the blood-brain barrier or of the epithelium in your central nervous system. Glial activation during MECFS pretty much is probably one of the biggest potentials you can lift. So we have just finished now animal testing in India in a, in a laboratory setting by Professor Hursolkar, where he did exactly that with medicinals 9, looking at 
uh, macrophage activation and glycosyl activation. Just to say something. So we have like, I know, I don't know, another 30, 40 different pathways that all play into long COVID, which are reported either on single molecules or on the whole formulation to be pretty well addressed. And I cannot do 150 additional human clinical trials to prove all of them. But whenever we go for one, it always gets confirmed much better than we even thought. So that is a good sign. And on the website, you find some of the customer feedback and reports. We cannot even publish them all. We just put them, some of them on there. But it's very encouraging. And it is actually the nicest part of my day is to read every day the feedback. <laughs> That's be the nicest part of our day if we felt better. <laughs> <laughs> What we are doing now, we, we have been setting up the, the Long COVID Coalition some weeks ago, where we are trying to get, first of all, um, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm nerving now and being a pain in the butt of all the researchers. You know, I tell them, I said, you guys are settling way too early. <laughs> Let us keep going. You know, there's so much still open that we don't understand about Long COVID, so don't settle now. Let's keep looking. And then once you identify the problems, you tell us exactly what the problems are. And then we relay that to other experts that look into diagnostics and therapeutics. And that's the only way out of this. And so don't settle. Now let us keep moving. And so, yes, there will be other nutraceuticals, other pharmaceuticals, mechanical interventions, aphorases, uh, antibodies, and what you just name it. And I think it's all useful if they are well done, if they don't do any damage, and if they work. And then we have to look at them, and then you have to see even if there's another nutraceutical working as well as, as medicinals, I wouldn't say a word. We would invite them into the coalition. We would show the product and then have a look at it. And if it works, I'm the last one to, to, to say, no, don't do that. You know, I'm the first one to invite them in. Because as long as we put patient interest above our own shareholder value or whatever, then we have a chance. If we don't take that serious, we will never succeed in beating this. Impossible. He talks about creating a coalition and uh, inviting people in who are essentially going to be in competition with him and his in, and his product because he does genuinely seem interested in furthering the course of research and, and treatment development for this disease. I found it really interesting that this is an international coalition, that he's working very closely with the Indians who have this long cultural history of looking at the body as a whole and treating it with nature and Ayurvedic medicine. And he's drawing on all of that kind of long history together with modern science to create something that may help people like us and other people with chronic illnesses. Yeah. And you know me, I love a bit of holistic healing. <laughs> you know, I'm still convinced that I'm going to breathe in yoga my way out of this, out of this disease. I know, you know but that. as I've said to you on text, do not do anything for at least a week. What else would you suggest that I should be doing? Anything else? I feel like it's a, just a waiting game till we all get COVID again. And so I'm kind of, I feel like I'm running that risk every day, especially because I'm out and about with the kids a lot. But I would be doing the medicinals nine, but then I would be doing the culture scene can't do cultrazine and medicinals nine by the way oh see see then what do you do so that's interesting right so i have this heart condition 
do I go the nutraceutical way or do I go the pharmacological way? I think you would have to take advice. And I have to say that Medicinals 9 are, I don't know if it's just for us, but they are very good at, at offering advice and they are some of the only nutraceuticals who have actually tested it. But I think that people really, really need to be careful of that, especially given the number of people who are likely to have heart conditions and to be on heart meds. And I really think it's quite specifically some of the heart meds, beta blockers that interfere with the medicinals nine. I think Joachim also said you can't take aspirin either. And aspirin would be key because we think that COVID is a thrombotic disease. Yeah. And interestingly, I was contemplating trying at some stage the natokinase. I don't know then, because that's an anti thrombotic isn't it or it's supposed to break down the clots I don't know if um if the two could be taken in conjunction so these are all things that we can just uh play Russian roulette with (laughs) (laughs) well listen I'm really 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 sorry that you got this again but I do feel like it's coming for all of us and maybe you'll build up some immunity to the next strain (laughs) fingers crossed Good. Well, I'm, I'm praying for a quick recovery for you and no long-lasting effects and maybe even a cure. Hopefully. Live in hope. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.